Welcome back to Repod, the University of Salford's research podcast. My name is Andy Meir, and today we're speaking to Professor Joe Sweeney, who is the Dean of Science, Engineering and Environment, the mega school where all the sciences come together. Enjoy. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Andy. It's great to have you here. And for those that are joining us for the first time, this is the research podcast of the University of Salford. And I am delighted to have Professor Joe Sweeney join today, who is the relatively new Dean of Science, Engineering and Environment. So how, how are you finding your feet, Joe? Uh, it's pretty good, Andy. I must admit, it's an exciting place to be. I spent, I think, I've been in post uh, about eight weeks. Uh, I've met all the staff in the school now, which is over three hundred people. So, it's been a bit of a whistle stop tour. It's been kind of tiring, but uh, it's a great place. You know what can I say? I'm just, I'm just privileged to be here and be able to help out, get these really talented people and students into the space they want to be to be able to do what they do, which is change people's lives. Right? That's what universities are all about. Yeah, they, they sure are. And it's a, it's really exciting to be joining at a time where hopefully things are getting back to a bit more of normality, more people on campus, more teaching face to face and and hopefully more research face to face, too. Yeah, I think obviously we, we just had a medical crisis, which is like a once in a hundred years situation. I think life's never going to be quite the same again. But I think, yeah, it's it's so nice to be able to to see people on and about the campus. I've been on campus, I guess, about 10 times in the last eight weeks or so. And uh, I was saying to someone the other day, it's amazing how you miss people seeing the people you didn't even like. You know, it's just <laughs> that, human, that human contact is just so important. And I think, uh, yeah, I think one of the things about the pandemic is just reinforced that, you know, life's all about people, right? Definitely. And I'm really proud of how much Sulfur's got done in research terms over this really difficult period and excited to get students back into labs and so on. And and I suppose partly that that possible transformative experience of research is one of the things we love to talk about on the show. So just to sort of get things started, tell us a bit about your background as a researcher. And I guess we'll talk a little bit later about research leadership. When did it begin for you? So, so I guess it's relevant to, to, to go right back to the start. You know, I'm first in family uh, um, to university, working class uh, Irish family, Irish Catholic family. Um, from an early age, always been interested in understanding things. You know, just always wanted to understand why things worked, how they worked. So in school, kind of just got into science naturally and really almost path of least resistance just to just ended up uh, at university. Really lucky to go to, to a great school so lucky you know to go to go to university where i went and and really just once i was at university decided that knowledge was 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 what i wanted to be involved in i didn't really know what what that meant at the time but you know knowledge has changed my life the social mobility aspect of university and understanding knowledge you know you know as someone once wrote knowledge is power Mm. Uh, and i think um one thing I realized early on in my, my kind of university career was that I just wanted to know things. I wanted to be able to do things to help people. You know, I come from a, a background where socialism with a, with a small s is, is, is the kind of modus operandi. And so 
my belief, which I got early on, was that we should be able to use science to help people. Science to me is about understanding the world around you, but then using it to, to help make life better. And that's where the research comes in. So pretty early on, in fact, when I remember going to see the careers master. I didn't really know what I was talking about at the time. I went to see the careers master at school and I said, I want to register for a PhD. And he said, what? I said, well, can I just register straight away for a PhD? He said, you haven't gone yet. So I said, well, I know, but he said, no, mate. He said, uh, do your degree first and then, you know, easy target sort of thing. Because <laughs> early on, I, I, I just had this feel that I just wanted to, to carry out research. I didn't really know what, what research was, if I'm honest, at the time. Yeah. But I just had this feeling that research was how you could kind of extrapolate, you could take what you knew and do more with it, you know. And obviously I'd watch research. I remember at the time in the day, Horizon was the big science programme. In fact, I think it was probably the only science programme. <laughs> like many of us, you know, it fired fired me up and I just got a feel for that. So so it was always in my mind that I'd go on and do research. And so I, I went to Imperial College um, to do chemistry. At the time, probably the best chemistry department in the world. Fantastic place, just fantastic mm. place. Unbelievably demanding. So I think at the time, Two of the lecturers were Nobel Prize winners. You know, it was wow. just it was just unbelievable. And so to be so lucky to go and meet these 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 talented people, and don't get me wrong, they weren't all pleasant. But <laughs> but the one thing that the that the imperial experience gave to me, which I think a lot of alumni from there would say, is that this this unbelievable rigor in in in, in how science is carried out. You know, the hypothesis, mm. test, analyze, and then back to refine the hypothesis. That kind of research loop that was, was evident even at an undergraduate level. And then I was doing, I was actually doing a research project in a lab of, of a guy called Steve Lays, who's a professor at Cambridge, who's just retired. Unbelievably inspirational man, just an absolute enthusiast. Like many of these, these very good researchers are really great in terms of personality and engagement, just, just a, a great guy. And while I was working in this lab, I got the chance to go do a PhD at Oxford. And I remember going up on the train for the interview and thinking, what am I doing here? Now I'm alive. I'm from Heighton. I'm from a council estate. You know, the only person, the only other person you know of who's come out of Heighton probably is, uh, is Stephen Gerrard. Or, oh, Peter Reed as well, actually. He was a decent player. <laughs> so I, I remember going up there and walking around Oxford and just thinking, I know imposter syndrome is something that, that a lot of academics suffer from, but I remember the first day when I was walking to the TNT and I just thought, nah, <laughs> what's going on here? Anyway, managed to blag it uh, and then ended up being a, a research fellow at the ATH in Zurich. Uh, and once you do your PhD, that's when you really get into research. When you're an independent, you have to be an independent scientist. And so that really got me going. And then I had a number of job opportunities. But other than that, I memorably was offered a, a job as a manager in a sock factory in Leicester, which I still sometimes regret turning down. Not that, I'm, not that socks may, uh, played that big a part in my life, but just because... Uh, I just I just like manufacturing and and to me science chemistry synthetic chemistry which is what we do we make molecules is manufacturing it's molecular manufacturing mm. so I had the chance to go in there and be a civilian but I really just thought you know I think I can do this and I thought what I actually thought was you know I've been lectured by a lot of great people and I'm pretty sure I could do as good a job because some of them weren't that good you know they were they were bright <laughs> and so I ended up um, becoming an academic. The main reason was research, but also because, like I said, I want to change people's lives. I want to help people get to, you know, my life was changed in, mm. I don't know, five, six years from being a, you know, a, a council estate boy to be doing a PhD at Oxford. And so I want to help people get in that space. And I, I've always believed in the value of science and in changing how, 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 how life can be and making it better for people. And while I was at Oxford, I worked on a number of different projects, but one of the big things in the research team I worked in, 
which was led by a guy called Jack Baldwin, who ended up being Sir Jack Baldwin. Unbelievable intellect, unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it in my life. You know, most academics like to think they're pretty smart. This guy yeah. just knocked everyone else out of the park. And these guys worked on, on how penicillins were made in nature. So penicillin, you know, probably the single greatest impact of science, something like 80 million lives saved worldwide in the Second World War from, from science, because as you probably know, the majority of deaths were caused by post-wound infection on the battlefield. So these guys were looking at how bugs make penicillin. Pretty much all penicillins are made by fermentation and they're modified into other ones. They were looking at how bugs made them from scratch because they thought, well, if we put different food into the bacteria, they'll make different penicillins, they'll give us great new drugs. So just unbelievably high-level stuff with direct societal impact. So, so you know, once you've seen that sort of thing, once you see what science can do, then um, – so I was locked in from that stage. And then uh, became an academic, got a job at University of Leicester. Temporary contract because I didn't think it was good enough to get a permanent job because I still had that imposter syndrome going on. <laughs> and from then on, I've been in a, quite a few academic institutions. I'm a new, unlike most, um, most academics, I think. So I went to Bristol, which is my first permanent job. Then University of Reading, where I was first promoted to professor. Then University of Huddersfield in 2011, which was great. And then Lancaster, where I was head of department. Uh, and then Salford on July the 12th this year. So, mm. <clears throat> so the, the journey has been has been um, it's been kind of a road trip. Where everywhere we've been, we've tried to do some decent research, but we've always tried to do stuff that's that uh, it, people use the word innovative. You know, you just want to do something that's a bit new, a bit distinctive. That's interesting, you know, because because you, you train people by doing this research, and it's got to be interesting to keep people involved. But we've always been very utilitarian as well. We always wanted stuff to be practical and usable, and and to see how it can it can be used in in in, uh, in practical backgrounds. So one of the publications we had early on in my career, we, we ended up being used by pharmaceutical chemists at the, in those days, Smith and Beecham. And so that's that's one of the greatest accolades you can have as a scientist is where you do something as an academic and then it's used by industry for you know for for a purpose that could affect people's lives. So uh, so yeah, that's my uh, that's my journey. And I remember, do you remember? Because I've spoken to quite a lot of our postgraduate researchers at Salford University, who are obviously on that journey of becoming a professional researcher. And it's a long journey. It's a process. And I think you mentioned some of your professors being really inspiring. How did you sort of remain motivated on that journey towards completing the PhD? Was it was it easy? Was it challenging? How did you find it? I think, I mean, yeah, it's challenging. So you have this valley of death in the second year, basically, where you just <laughs> think nothing's going right. Nothing's ever going to go right. And this is, you know... It goes back to that kind of famous Einstein quote, doesn't it? About you know we don't know what we're doing. If we did know what we were doing, we wouldn't call it research. And I think <laughs> when you're doing when you're doing something that's completely new, and that's that's always, I know you you shouldn't be doing something as straightforward as a researcher, right? You should be trying to do stuff that, that that's new and interesting and cool. And sometimes it's not always obviously applicable. You know, sometimes it's way down the line that someone else is going to pick it up. The motivation, I think, was really, for me, was, um, and obviously I wanted to complete a PhD, you know, I, that, that was massively important to me as, as a landmark. But the other thing was, it just felt that if you did things in the right way, that it would inevitably work. And so if you were logical about it, and I think one of the things I learned about, uh, about myself is that, uh, and perhaps this is all people, the biggest thing, the biggest challenge in research is letting go of something that you believe in. Because you know, ideas are kind of like children. And so when it doesn't work, you tend to just try and throw effort at it. 
And actually, the biggest thing in research is being able to say, okay, no, stop. We're not doing that anymore. Usually because we don't know what's going on, but it's not working. And I think that was that was the big thing for me that I took forward was that ability to kind of draw a line under something and say, okay, well, although I spent a year doing this, it's junk. I don't, I don't know enough about it to be able to fix it. And so I need to do something else. So I think that the kind of discipline to be able to do that is important. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think I did it perfectly. But I think that you learned that. And, and, and again, the rigor of the process, the eye for detail, you've got to be meticulous. Sometimes you'll see a piece of data that is looks odd and it might be a tiny one. So, you know, in chemistry, a lot of the time we're analyzing purity of compounds. And so you'd see, you'd see an analysis of, of a compound and you'd see a tiny impurity and you'd sometimes think, well, what's that? And then that often that's the interesting one. So mm-hmm. I think what, what, one of the things you need is not, you need an eye for detail. You need resilience mm-hmm. because you're going to fail a lot of the time. <laughs> and I think that's really important, you know, carrying that through when, you, when you're training people, you say to them, you know, it's all right to fail. If you come and tell me it didn't work, in many ways, I'm happy with that because I don't expect it to work. Someone once said to me, you need 100 ideas because 99 and I'm going to be garbage. And actually, that's right. So I think the resilience is something that you pick up on. And then at the end of the day, you just have to slug it out, right? You know, just get your thesis written, get out, get on to the next thing. <laughs> and when you were studying, you mentioned sort of being inspired by teachers and scientists. Was chemistry always the place you were going? Or did you have a moment of thinking, no, this is the subject that I really believe in and think that's where I want to be? So I actually, I registered, I started a degree in chemistry and biochemistry at Imperial College. Mm. But uh, because I was always actually, it was proteins that really fascinated me, protein structure. Um, but there were two problems with that. One was that the the, the biochemistry joint honors course at Imperial was famously evil because it was basically two uncompromising degree programs sandwiched together, kind of mm-hmm. like what they used to call a cut and shut, you know, they, they put two cars together and so on. <laughs> so basically it was exhausting. It was it was just, I would get in, I would get into the whole residence from labs and fall asleep and wake up at 10 o'clock, wow. get some food, go to bed, and it just killed me. So, but also I was starting to realize that actually the, all the protein things that was interesting was at a molecular level, you know, and, and, and biology, you know, conceptually, it's quite different to chemistry. Biologists are happy if they know the molecular weight of something to within plus or minus 10,000. Chemists, if they don't know where all the electrons are, they're embarrassed. And so you know, that, that, that eye for kind of detail. So, so what I liked about the, the proteins was, was understanding the detail of the structure as much as the function. And that's really a chemical thing. So I switched to the chemistry option because um, of those two things. And also I was kind of interested in totally non-biology stuff like quantum mechanics and st- stuff mm. like that. Don't think I have a master quantum mechanics, but that so 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 that was a kind of a kind of a Damascene moment for me, if you, if you will. Mm-hmm. Everything else, like I said, from the age of seventeen, I thought about doing a PhD, so that was almost kind of kind of natural. And uh, you know, I've been really lucky. I've been I've, I've managed to get myself into places where I've just been presented with these fantastic opportunities. You know, I was doing a project with this with this guy Steve Lay, and, and then next thing I got a chance to go to Oxford what's not to like right so so i think you know i've, I've made some decent decisions i think but also i've just been really lucky andy you know no two ways yeah. about it 
And I know you're very passionate about bringing that sort of fortune into people, but that perhaps don't typically have opportunities to reach higher education or to find careers, particularly in science. But I, I wonder how does that sort of background really inform how you approach leadership in research, I guess now as the dean, but also across your career? <coughs> has that been a sort of big priority for you? I, I think I think in terms of leadership, you know, there's an awful lot of guff spoken about leadership, but I, I think that, that there's two sorts of leadership. You know, one is being good, you know, leading by example. And I think I've done a bit of that, not not, not by all means, but, you know, we've had some decent highlights. Yeah. I think also, you know, being from Liverpool, I was drawing everything back to football at the end of the day. And the best footballers are ones who aren't just good. They bring other players into the game. So we had a player called Kenny Dalglish, who was just unbelievable. He was probably still my my hero. And he, I, But we had this fullback called Phil Neal as well, and Dalglish made Neal a better player. Every time he got the ball, he'd be looking for him. I think that's that's the thing about leadership, is empowering other people, you know, just bringing them into the game. And that can be by leading by example, but also with the correct sort of advice at the right time, and also being very honest with people and, and transparent. So I think, you know, leadership, I know, it, it, I'm pausing because leadership leader sounds like a really grand title, but actually it's not. It, it, most leaders are leaders because no one else wants to do it, you know, <laughs> if I'm honest. And what you have to do is, it goes back to the collective. You know, if, you, if you're a leader, you, you're working with a collective. You have to believe in the value of the collective over the individual. And mm. I think if you can credibly demonstrate that to the collective, that's, how, that's leadership to me. Uh, I think you can inspire people and you can challenge them to do better. Uh, but you've got to be realistic. You can't you can't ask people to do more than they're capable of. So for me, the leadership is really about raising people's spirits to to understand how good they are, and then empowering them to be able to do it. I really at every level of life, you know, having kids, I'm lucky enough to have three lovely kids, and 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 you know, I'm not sure it's really practical to say to kids you can be anything you want because you know, with the best world in the world, they're not going to be a concert pianist or a, an Olympic skier. What you can say to them is. Be aware of what you can do and then always look to the next thing. And I think so leadership to me is about is about making pe people feel like they belong and then providing them with the tools to do what they're good at. Yeah, because a lot has changed. I mean, certainly over my career and yours, too, I'm sure is research has changed so dramatically in universities where we have things like research excellence framework where we're looking at impact do you think that it's it's harder these days to be a, a good researcher do you think it's similar what are the sort of ways in which you see that change over over 20 or 30 so years i think one of my heroes was dorothy hodgkin so dorothy hodgkin female nobel prize winner chemistry for for x-ray crystallography and she famously said during the thatcher era if it, if the current funding regime is in place when she'd been doing it she never would have finished a single project mm -hmm. and i think the, the, the strain to do pressure to do research now is is enormous. You can understand the need to balance taxpayer value for money. And you know, as a taxpayer, you and I, Andy, pay tax. You pay, probably pay quite a lot of tax. I bet you pay more than I do. <laughs> um, I, I think that's really important. Fiscal rectitude is really important. But by the same token, research is important that it's unconstrained, at least a little bit of it. You know, nowadays we have so many targeted calls and this, that, the other to, to deal with societal challenges. And that's yeah. absolutely right, science. In fact, public funding of science goes back to really the Second World War when people did a lot of work, for instance, on penicillin's fluorine chains work. You know, as I said, it saved millions of lives on the battlefield. I think all scientists in universities understand that. I think one of the problems is that obviously it's a, it's different it's it's a bit it's a bit easy to go the other way and say well it's all got to be applied and we've got to be able to use it all right now. There are many problems. Gregor Mendel is a great example here. You know, Mendel was unknown 
His work was unknown for literally decades, and it's the basis of all molecular biology. So I think research is really tough to do at the moment. It's always been tough because we don't know what we're doing, to go back to the Einstein quotes. Now, because you don't have the time to do research yourself anymore. And to be honest, even when I came into the game, you can't be a lecturer or a professor and do your own research. You just, there's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah. So you need people, and for people you need money. So research is really tough to sustain these days. There's a continuing concentration in certain universities. I and mean, you can see that makes strategic sense from one point of view. You know, Apart from anything else in terms of administration, it's easier to try to one check than 100. <laughs> but there's talent everywhere in the university game. You know, if you look at, you mentioned about REF, and before that it was the research assessment exercise. And one of the things that these repeated analyses have shown is that there's just talent everywhere. There is talent all over the university system. To be honest, when you think about the people involved, there's no surprise. You know, we're, we're, I'm working with colleagues who have had seven years of training and then a postdoc at Harvard. And they're working on, for instance, self-driving cars. If these mm -hmm. are unique individuals in the world. You know, I, I will not find another researcher like that in the world. I'll find someone similar. And so, again, if you draw it to a football analogy, I don't know how much Ronaldo's getting played a week at Man United, <laughs> but some of our people are, are in the same situation as Ronaldo. They're unique. And, yeah. and if it's something that's societally relevant, like self-driving cars, you know, we, we have the government at hello on that one. We're looking at people who are enormously talented and we've got to free up their ability to be able to deliver, you know, get the ideas from their head into the next product for people. So research is tough. You know, we're on the back of the, we're about to hit Brexit in terms of losing research funding. Allegedly we won't, but we will. We've got a big hole in the economy from, from the, the post-pandemic economic diff. And so it's really tough. What I want to say to anyone who's interested in research is don't give up. You know, mm. talk of our demise is greatly exaggerated. Research is going to continue to provide new things for people that are going to change their lives. Some of it might be Hollywood stuff, like a new iPhone screen. Some of it's going to be the next antiviral for the next time we have a COVID situation. So to anyone at the early days of their career, it's tough. It's tough. Keep going. Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially because the research career is so very long. And I think many people do continually sort of evolve their research to make sure that they can stay agile. For me, that's one of the key things, especially sort of working in technology and emerging sciences. It's trying to stay agile. And I think as a school of science, engineering and environment, we have a really huge population of, of researchers that are now working together across really exciting areas. And I suppose as you've come into Salford, how do you see that sort of configuration of those different disciplines and, and what would be, I guess, your sort of top three priorities for research going forward? What do you what do you really want to achieve? So I think, yeah, I, th I think Salford's in a great place. It's in a great place. So some of the things that we've got going on, we've got, so for instance, Energy House uh, mm -hmm. run by Will Swan and his team. So for those who don't know about Energy House, which actually might be a lot of people because I didn't know, this is a fantastic idea where, these, these guys and women want to find out how we can make the houses of the future. How can we minimize carbon footprint? How can we make houses self-heating, self-cleaning, whatever? So as a start point, they built a terrace house inside the lab. It is simply the coolest thing I've seen for a long time. And they've got sensors and actuations and go-go. They can measure everything that comes in and goes out of the house. It's just fantastic. So that, that could affect everyone's life tomorrow, right? You know, everyone wants to get the heating bills down. Everyone wants to get rid of drafts in their houses. 
the only way you do that is by understanding where it all happens, right? So, and so the energy house people, are, this is what they're doing. And we've got energy house two, which is coming up, as you know. It's got this is going to be four houses built inside a giant lab where we can simulate weather conditions. We can we can do anything we want, and of course, this is all supported by the the construction industry. So you know that these these this is a jewel in the crown of of the UK, and not just Salford. Mm-hmm. Energy House is fantastic. There are a number of things about construction that are going to provide challenges going forward. But one thing is very clear: we all need houses, right? It, it's one of the fun, it's one of the defining features of evolution. Once you know that something like eighty percent of landfill is building waste. All of a sudden, you think, well, wait there, you know, this is something we need to deal with because you can't recirculate building waste. If you look at Japan, for many years, Japanese houses are repurposable. Mm-hmm. 10, 20 years after you've been in a house, you take the walls apart, you put it back together in a different way. So this notion of having recyclable building materials like that is something which is clearly something we've got to get on. And we're, at, we're all over that at Salford with partners outside, with industry partners, with housing groups. So there's things like that. You know, we've got the automation that I spoke about, the robotics lab. We've got, we've got NERIC, the North England Research Robotics Innovation Centre. This is this, These are people are actively working on automated driving, I just mentioned. I think I'm right in saying Salford is the only place that has a ground-up designed automated car. All the others are based on modified existing cars. So, you know, we've got real advances there, and these things are going into road trials now. We've got the Ignition Project, which is all about recirculating water and things like that for environmental benefit. If you come to Salford, you'll see the growing wall, which is this fantastic wall of plants, which is which is watered by recirculated wastewater that comes through the roof, out of the drains. We've got all sorts of monitoring situations going on, so we know everything that comes in and out. And really, this is the way of the future. You know, One of the problems with household waste is that we think of it as someone else's problem. We stick it in the bin, we put it on the, on, on the curb, someone else takes it away. Actually, we should be taking responsibility for all our waste. If no waste ever left our houses, how cool would that be? And we're interested in doing research to get some gadgets and boxes you put in your house. You put waste food in the top, and you get something at the bottom you could use. So, so you know that that that's a, those sorts of research programs are focused on real day-to-day life. And then at the other end, we've got we've got people like Michael Lasanti and his group who are working on drugs of the future. Cancer is something which is an increasing problem for an aging population. Very difficult to treat, as everyone knows, because it's your own cells which have gone rogue. So, you know, we've got world-leading research there, which is going to take 15 to 20 years to permeate into day-to-day life because of the regulatory processes involved in pharma. So we've got a whole range of really diverse things going on across the campus. We've got great research in acoustics, so hearing, 40% 40% of people over the age of 40 will have a hearing loss. This is something that isn't well dealt with at the moment. But also there's all sorts of things to do with acoustics in cars. So you'll know when you drive a car on a motorway, it gets very loud. And that's because of the acoustical environment. So, you know, we've got collaborations of our world-leading acoustics team with Bentley, Mealy, all sorts of international corporations. And again, these are things which will change lives. So really excited about the research portfolio at Salford. My job is to help these people, these talented, great people, do what they're doing, do it better, but also then to let everyone know about it, to get people out, and also to let people know about how social mobility is affected by what we do, how we change lives, and that's what we're all about. And whether we're changing lives through research, and I think all those things I've mentioned, everyone would agree would change their lives, or whether it's just fundamentally empowering people to go on and do research or work in industry 
or do whatever, just help themselves fulfill the talent, you know. Salford University is an engine for social change, and that's really what we're all about. And that sounds like a very good place to end this conversation, which has been really very far reaching. But I do want to ask one sort of final question, because you mentioned this earlier. And I just want to get a sense of, of how you see this, because you talked about one of the interests in creative in, in getting into synthetic chemistry was making stuff, creating stuff and you know, looking at what's behind you, the artwork there behind you. How do you see it's a very provocative question, perhaps, but how do you see the links between art and science? Because they seem to come out of how you talk about science. But is that an important connection for you? Yeah, so uh, I can show you this. Uh, yeah. This is from a pal of mine called Rob Hall. He's on Instagram. He's selling these things. They're, okay. they're really affordable. So it's Rob underscore Hall underscore painter <laughs> on Instagram. So I think there's always been a connection between arts and science. And, and I'm a, 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 I think if you look, if you look at the, the nature of art and the scientific basis for it, so if you think about good things like golden ratios, what, mm. what looks beautiful to the eye, symmetry, things like that. There are consistent themes in art and science, and especially in chemistry, symmetry is really important, especially for my game. You know, people are symmetrical, the things around us are symmetrical, and that is a mathematical construct. And we've evolved to perceive that as being something that is natural and normal. You know, if you see a tree that only grows on one side, it doesn't look right. Mm -hmm. So, that, so there's, there's inherent science in art, and also both both in the other direction as well. So, you know, I mentioned about trying to do things in a kind of smarter way. There's an art in doing something. So, for instance, if you have a way to make a, a drug substance that takes 45 chemical reactions, there's an art in coming up with something that takes three reactions. And mm -hmm. I think that that kind of the beauty of, of, of a way of thinking is an artistic process in itself. If you look at an intellectual process and think, well, you know, that's smart. I think that's, there's an art in that. So, so I think... And of course, history tells us many, many scientists were also practicing artists. So, yeah, art all over science. Fantastic. And I uh, really look forward to working more with you in the future, Joe. And uh, what a great way to end the show. We're talking about art and science. And uh, as you know, this is a, a podcast that we have schools across the university talking about their work. And it's really interesting when you get right down to the basics of what motivates someone. It's often a combination of that creativity and, and methodology, which uh, I think is present in all disciplines. So thanks so much for joining us today and look forward to seeing you soon. OK. Cheers, Andy. Take care, Joe. Bye bye. Well, that was Professor Joe Sweeney, Dean of the School of Science, Engineering and Environment, telling his story from Liverpool to Solvent. It doesn't sound too far away, but he's been on a whirlwind of a career that's taken him across the United Kingdom, leading research and innovating through creative chemistry. We will be back again for another episode next week. And I just want to remind you that this is now the beginning of the academic year and there's so much planned across the year. I'll be taking on a new role to lead on our engagement across the public sector. And we've got so much coming up, not least of which is the ESRC Festival of Social Science, which is in November. At the same time, we've got the COP26 programme and there are people all over the university working towards that. So stay tuned and you'll find out more. Take care.